Welcome to Important Not Important. My name is Quinn Emmett. And my name is Brian Colbert-Kennedy. And this is science for people who give a shit. That's right. Uh, We give you the tools that you need to fight for a better future for everyone. The context straight from the smartest people on Earth and Uh the action steps you can take to support them. That's right. Our guests are uh, scientists, doctors, nurses, uh, journalists, activists, farmers, uh, CEOs, astronauts, even a reverend. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Oh, this is your friendly reminder that you can send questions, thoughts, and or feedback to us on Twitter at importantnotimp or email us at questions at importantnotimportant.com. You can also join tens of thousands of other smart folks and subscribe to our free weekly newsletter at importantnotimportant.com. Brian, I don't know if you saw our previous guest, episode number, wait for it, 42. Whoa. Dr. Cyan Proctor. Dr. Proctor. Do you remember Dr. Proctor? Of course. Do you remember she calls herself the analog astronaut? Yes, yes. Did you see she got picked to go to fucking space? Yes. Dr. Proctor is going to space. So excited. Pretty wonderful. Uh, Pretty damn wonderful. We we will definitely rerun that one because, God, she was awesome. Uh, That was just a fantastic conversation. That's Um, so huge. Yeah, all the way back 2018. Um, uh, it was called What Happens When You're Almost an Astronaut. Yeah. Now she's going to be an astronaut. Oh, Best thing so ever. Great. We can erase that uh, almost. Yep, 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 yep. Anyways, uh, yep, those are our guests. You can send us the feedback. Um, we love it all. Brian, this week, uh, we are talking about uh, Data for Progress, which is uh, the name of a kick-ass organization. Also, just a loaded term. It's fantastic. It's about data. And what are we using it for, Brian? Uh, for progress. progress. We're talking about how do we get to this uh, elusive thing called pro- progress, mm, I believe is how you describe yes. it. Pro- progress. I've heard of this. Uh, and why it matters who is leading that charge. That's right. And mm-hmm. wonderfully, our guest is Julian mm-hmm. Brave Noisecat, journalist, author, policy advocate, so many other things. Uh, and we're on, of course, so thankful uh, that he took the time to join us today. That's right. Uh, he's in the middle of his writing his book, which we stopped him from doing, which yep. was great. Middle of uh, getting his washer fixed. Stopped that from happening, yep. too. So all in all, I'm sure he's definitely not regretting. <laughs> so pumped uh, that he was on the show. The yeah. hour he spent with us. But uh, boy, some incredible perspective uh, and commentary on where we are, where we've been, where we're going, and what everybody here can do to uh, support his efforts and those of everybody who are trying to do the right thing. Right. Should we go talk to him? Yeah, it was so good. Let's let the, he- the people hear it. Let's let the people hear it, Brian. Yeah. Okay. Here we go. Our guest today is Julian Brave Noisecat, and together we're talking about why it matters, who's doing the measuring. Uh, Julian, welcome. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. Julian, could you please uh, give us, uh, just give everybody a a quick little intro uh, just on who you are and um, and what you do. Yeah, sure. Um, So my name is Julian Brave Noisecat. I'm the vice president of policy and strategy at Data for Progress, which is a progressive think tank that uses um, data science and in particular public opinion research, as well as policy analysis um, and occasionally other forms of research to develop and advocate for progressive uh, policies, particularly related to climate change and climate justice. I also do a fair amount of uh, journalism and writing in addition to uh, the policy advocacy and activism work. And I'm supposed to be working on a book right now, um, but I I say (laughs) yes to far too many uh, opportunities to go on podcasts. So not doing as much (laughs) book writing as I should be. 
Um, well, I'm also a, a citizen of the Sikwetmuk Nation and a descendant of the Liwat Nation of Mount Curry in what's now British Columbia, Canada. Awesome. Thank you. Well, well, I'm both uh, thankful that you, you lost another hour of book writing to us, but also I, you have my apologies. It's uh, nothing like <laughs> cutting into that. I totally okay. get it. I, I haven't mean, yeah, thing say, I've Quinn discovered is like, if I want to make the time, no one else is going to make the time for me. I just need to defend it. <laughs> Hundred percent, man. I mean, my day job is I'm, I'm actually a screenwriter, uh, and so I actually created this entire business instead of just doing my work. Um, so <laughs> I, I fully empathize uh, with, Funny what, how that works. with what you're doing. Yeah, one hundred percent. Awesome, Good Lord. awesome. Thank you for that. As a reminder to everyone, uh, and so you know, Julian, our goal on the show here is to provide some uh, context for um, our question or our topic uh, today, and then we'll dig into action-oriented questions. And uh, and action steps uh, and what everyone out there can do to uh, to help uh, support. Sound good? Sounds good. Awesome, uh, Julian. We'd like to start with one important question. It's a little ridiculous, but uh, 107 something guests have had some fun with it. Uh, instead of saying "tell us your entire life story," uh, we'd like you to, to boldly answer, uh, "Why are you vital to the survival of the species?" Oh shit! I don't think I am vital to the survival <laughs> of the species. Um, I would say that humanity has a unique capacity for collaboration and cooperation. You know, we've developed languages and cultures uh, and entire governing structures to facilitate the better aspects of our humanity. And, you know, I think about and work on climate change and the many assorted and related uh, problems interconnected to it every single day. And when you get down to it, um, cooperation is, is really going to be one of the most essential parts of tackling uh, our current ecological uh, crisis, uh, crises actually. And yeah, I mean, I guess as someone who thinks about policy governance um, and uh, communication from the perspective of a journalist and writer and advocate, I guess that I uh, have some of the skills that I think are going to be essential for broader humanity to tackle these crises. But um, I, I do not think that I'm essential to that project. Oh, that's a hell of an answer nonetheless. Yeah, you're, you're certainly right. not alone. I would say 70% of people answer, or they just laugh at us, which is always a great start. <laughs> Thanks for not laughing at us. Um, awesome, man. Well, listen, uh, Julian, this is... I, I'm 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 excited to have this conversation because I'm 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 so thankful and uh, admire so much the work you guys do and particularly what you do because you obviously do a lot of things. So I want to focus on that as our topic, sort of how we're measuring policy now and and climate and COVID and and more and why transparency and transparency and and inclusivity means so much in the measurement and in the advocacy. You have very quickly become. One of our most, to lack of a better word, prominent influential measurers. And on your personal website, you said the belief that indigenous peoples can contribute to understanding and addressing the world's most pressing challenges inspires my work. And and that reminded me of there was this cat named Richard Hamming, who was a just this titan of American mathematics. And he worked at Bell Labs back in the day when they had all these different disciplines on the same hallway. And he gave this speech in which he kind of funnily described this 
brutally honest lunch conversation he had with some folks from the chemistry department. And as he recounts, he said, I went over and said to the chemistry people, do you mind if I join you? And they said, they can't say no. So I started eating with them for a while. And I started asking, what are the important problems of your field? And after a week or so, what are the important problems you're working on? And after some time, I came in one day and said, if what you are doing is not important, and if you don't think it's going to lead to something important, why are you at Bell Labs working on it? And I thought about that in sort of the context of your quote, because you, again, you do so much more than data and analysis. So I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how your background and your values, how you use those to focus on these, the world's most pressing issues from, again, so many different applications from, like you said, journalism and data and everything. Yeah. So I grew up in Oakland, California, which um, I think is a very interesting place and uh, played a very significant role in shaping who I am and, and how I think. I also grew up in a probably fairly unusual household. Um, my father is uh, First Nations, as I said, originally from, from the Canadian side of the border, uh, although uh, he moved here and has lived here for uh, coming up on 40 years or four, four decades. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I've lived in the U.S. pretty much my entire life with like a few exceptions for short periods of time where I lived in back in Canada or, or went off to school um, in the UK. And, you know, that experience of growing up in a place that is uh, remarkably diverse, like Oakland, uh, that has a long history of progressive activism that includes um, the student movements of the 1960s, the Black Panther Party, uh, as well as the origins to a certain extent of the native rights movement with the occupation of Alcatraz mm -hmm. uh, beginning in 1969 and extending through 20, or sorry, 1971. Um, you know, that, that whole history, which was still, the memory of which was still alive and well in the community when I was growing up, as well as, you know, sort of the unusual circumstances of living in a, a household where uh, my dad, you know, was native and was an artist and, you know, was very proud of that. And uh, there's all sorts of, you know, sort of uh, elements of the art world. My dad's an artist that I got to be part of that, you know, really made me proud to be uh, indigenous at the same time as I, my dad sort of left our home when uh, I was very young, when I was six or seven or so. Um, so I grew up in a single mother household and, you know, sort of was awake to the world's injustices, you know, through that personal experience, as well as uh, through sort of just the culture and realities of a very diverse urban city like Oakland. I think all of that, uh, you know, sort of pushed me to value my experience and the experience of the community that I was from, which was, uh, you know, the native community, which itself was, uh, even though the Oakland is very diverse, uh, you know, uh, the native community was, was often seen as fairly peripheral. Mm -hmm. And, you know, at the same time, I, uh, I thought that we had a history and a perspective uh, that, that mattered um, probably before I had enough knowledge to know that we did in fact have a history and perspective that mattered. You know, I've been very uh, blessed to pursue the education and a career that allows me to, among other things, sort of make the case for, for the perspective that says that we matter and that we have uh, something to lend to 
uh, some of the, the biggest and broadest challenges of our time. Yeah, I mean that. I mean, like you said, it's 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 a fairly unique uh, childhood perspective. I mean, certainly much different than mine, and I imagine very different than most. I, I usually save this question towards towards the end, but I'm curious. All of that atmosphere being around you very intimately in your own home, and uh, you know, having a, a single mom for a period of time, and, and everything that happened after Alcatraz, and and like you said, the the native people seemingly on the periphery. I'm curious when that became sort of practical. So the question I usually ask is, when was the first time in your life when you realized you had the power of change or the power to actually do something meaningful? I'm curious when that starts to kick in for you. Oh, that's a really interesting question. I think that I still struggle with feeling as though I have the power to influence and make change. You know, I think that there's a enormous amount of history and a pervasive erasure of Native people in this country that continues to suggest to people like me that uh, we don't have matter and or you know are are gone or are stuck in the past and um, therefore don't have anything to lend to the challenges that our society and the broader humanity face today. And, you know, I think on some of my lower days, I still feel that to a certain extent, you know, I, I still feel as though, you know, native people don't matter to anyone, including progressives uh, sometimes. And then I think on other days, you know, uh, I do feel as though what my community and my people and I have to say about various challenges is honored and respected. And I think that that, you know, sort of varies by day. Like, you know, I think it probably goes all the way back to, you know, the teachers and, you know, figures in my life who made me feel as though there was something of value in that history and experience. And um, that, you know, I had had something insightful or, or something that mattered. Uh, to say. And, mm -hmm. you know, I'm incredibly and eternally grateful to all of the people who cultivated that, that sense of value when I was, you know, growing up and getting educated and going throughout my life. And there are many of those people, uh, my mom probably being the, the, the biggest among them. Mm -hmm. um, yes. And then, you know, beyond that, I think that there's, there's, uh, I think it's very normal for people, people to feel um, excluded and, um, like their voice doesn't matter. And, you know, I, I certainly still feel that way, um, on many days. And there were many other figures in my life who probably not intentionally, although maybe in some instances intentionally made me, made me feel that way. So. That's super compelling. I, I appreciate you sharing that. It's, um, again, as someone who, who does writing, but, you know, as a straight privileged white guy, even when I turn stuff in, I can, you know, you hit send on the button and you just feel the fraud symbol blinking. Like, <laughs> why would anyone be interested in this? Um, but exactly. I, I imagine... I think about that every, with everything I do. Yeah, yeah. But I I, 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 I can and, and cannot obviously imagine um, how, how much more complicated uh, that can feel and and the number of inputs on how that cumulatively build up to to create that feeling sometimes, even with someone who has been published everywhere and contributed in, in so many compelling ways to to getting us to where we are today, frankly. I think in a you know any sort of 
society and certainly in a democracy, there's like a desire to be heard and valued that tends to go proportionally with your ability to influence power and in DC to influence money and votes. And, you know, I think the thing that, that I often still feel is that I think that there's a lot of well-intentioned people on many sides of the political spectrum who, you know, want to acknowledge and include native people, but that there is an underlying sense that there are so few native people and native people are, you know, so lacking in power that it's not a constituency that should be included or prioritized um, Mm -hmm. in any sort of way. So it's almost like a utilitarian kind of uh, and pragmatic relationship to who matters and who is valued. Uh, and yeah, I think that part is, 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 is very hard because on some level it suggests that the assimilation and, and genocide of, of native people has had a lasting impact on the perception of whether or not we are a voice and constituency that, that, that matters and should be listened to even Mm -hmm. by the folks on sort of the, the good, good guys side of the spectrum. That, 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 thank you for for sharing that. It's um, I, I I've thought about that as you know you so and 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 we can get into this a little more the, you know the the influence you you have had in part and parcel with a lot of other incredible hardworking folks about you know getting uh making Deb for interior a real thing uh, which is which is incredible um and you know I think back to when Obama got elected and. Um, there was a lot of, maybe not a lot of, but certainly a fair amount of, um, you know, folks who look like Brian and I, maybe from the South or uh, whoever, wherever it might be, that felt a lot of like, are you happy now? You know, sort of. Uh, you know, you 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 got your guy in office. Is is that enough? Um, and and also on the same stroke, how so many different groups, so many different disparate and, and and mostly, you know, well-meaning groups that had been not listened to for so long put so much on one person being in office and, and projected very, very real and very uh, valuable wants and needs onto what uh, what hope can do, what, what, what this person Im- embodied. And I've, I've just thought about that in the context of, 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 getting representative uh, Holland in, into become having her become secretary which is which is just incredible and a long time coming especially in that office of all offices and i just i wonder if you've thought a little at all about about that what it means now once it's reality i mean they always talk about you know when someone runs for president how different the com- the campaign version is from from the realities of of doing the job and running the show yeah. how that's translating uh in sort of this in the aftermath of her really getting up to speed yeah i mean uh, firstly um you know i'd say that obviously it took uh a lot more than just me and in particular i think that um Madam Secretary Holland deserves an incredible amount of credit for leading a very compelling life and um, mm-hmm. navigating what must have been an, an impossibly complicated career to get to, you know, the place where she is now and mm-hmm. to, you know, carry the hopes and dreams of a people like, you know, to this point, I think that that's, I 
I only can know a small fraction of what that feels like when I, you know, talk to her and um, from my own perspective and experience. And, you know, I know that that must be uh, that kind of leadership. I mean, that, that must be really hard. Um, it's obviously a, a privilege, but it's also um, a burden to a certain extent. Sure. And, you know, I think that, I think that she has so far navigated it with remarkable amount of grace and, you know, at least in her time in Congress was a very progressive, but also I would say a very reasonable person uh, who was willing sure. to listen to and work with folks of all sorts of ideological backgrounds to, you know, move forward policies. She actually saw four bills signed into law in her time in Congress, which is a pretty remarkable achievement for someone who was only there for, for two years, a little over two years. And, you know, I think that it's probably unreasonable to expect her to undo more than 200 years of um, oppression and history, uh, you know, now that she's in the leadership of interior. Uh, but it's also probably unfair to say that she can't make any progress on that history. Um, and so I think that, you know, she's going to have to do the very difficult thing of leadership, which is, you know, making, um, progress and, and judicious decisions, uh, to advance a number of very worthy goals related to native rights and uh, climate action and, you know, environmental sustainability. Um, at the same time as she's going to have to, you know, balance the realities of being an executive of a remarkably large and complicated bureaucracy that, you know, doesn't, the ship doesn't turn 90 degrees, um, sure. you know, real quick. Right. So, I, you know, I think that's going to be, I think that's going to be hard, but I think that she's, you know, she's, she's done this before. She's run a state democratic party before she's navigated Congress before. Um, and so I'm, I'm very hopeful that she's going to make us all proud, uh, through her, her work at interior. I think that was one, I mean, uh, obviously, you know, any number of frustrating things, but in her hearings, you know, uh, I can't remember who the, who the person was who who was like you know I'm not I'm not I'm not voting for her she hasn't answered any questions with substance and her views are radical and it's like she was actually fairly bipartisan for again in like a very short t- period of time in Congress like, like you said she's very reasonable and very effective I mean to 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 pass four bills in two years doesn't really happen um, and that requires someone who's who's a listener uh, and and is also, you know, firm in, in what they stand for and what they feel like they're able to do. That's like you said, she's, she's navigated some things before clearly. Yeah. especially in a period of divided government. I mean, the only way to pass a bill in a divided government is to work across the aisle. So, yeah. um, you know, I think right. the other thing that you have to deal with, of course, is a, as a leader and as a public figure and probably even more so as a woman and a, and a person of color than others is a, a real mis- misrepresentation of who you are and what you stand for. Uh, mm-hmm. And I imagine that part is, is very hard, right? Because, you know, if somebody was saying mean or inaccurate things about me, I would want to respond to every single thing that happened. But of course, as, sure. you know, right. uh, someone in, in holding public office and, um, you know, with a responsibility now to uh, not just a party, but to an administration and a president, you can't do that. Um, and, 
I don't know. I mean, I often think about, um, it ruins my day when anybody gets mad at me on the internet and then I think about, you know, politicians <laughs> no, I mean, the, the, who the have to deal with that every above day. Anything else. Yeah, the rest, I, I just can't even imagine. I mean, do you have to take the phone out of no my way. hands? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, that'd be tough. Um, let's, uh, let's talk about data for progress. Um, per, per the website, uh, you, you do a voter analysis, voter file analysis, um, digital communications, polling and, and policy de- development and uh, message guidance. You're hugely instrumental um, in the showing, uh, showing the appeal of the Green New Deal. Uh, your your guest bloggers are you know a, a who's who of of progressive heavyweights. Uh, it's all great, but your your team isn't you know just a pie in the sky think tank. Uh, you know throwing out just liberal theoreticals on on Sunday morning talk shows. It's called Data for Progress. Mm-hmm. You've got a mission for progress founded on data. <laughs> just today you tweeted a, a bit about how the American Jobs Plan is going to see some uh, differentiation from what, you know, influential wonks and and the public find, find most important to get done and why we have to walk the line of maximizing wonky plans that work with what will actually get passed and be popular and keep the House and the Senate in in the hands of, you know, people who will continue to get stuff done. There must be some, some focus internally on, on how you guys position yourselves to not just be writing out thought papers every week that are never actually going to get applied to, you know, or yes, this wonky thing would be great, but it's never going to happen. How do you, I guess, how do you choose to focus, like what, what to focus on and how to emphasize and and deliver that in such an effect? I mean, you guys have only been around for like three years. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, So I would say that we... I've gotten lucky to a certain extent. So sometimes we choose to focus on things and, you know, other people decide that they're of interest as well. But I would also say that we, and this is not unique necessarily to our think tank or organization, but we tend to think about not just, you know, devoid of sort of context and uh, questions of of power, basically, you know, who who to influence and how to persuade them, and you know, what sort of things would be persuasive to them. You know, we don't we don't think about research absent those kinds of questions. Um, so, you know, if the question of the day is, um, you know, a concern about. Uh, well, you know, one of the concerns moving forward will be um, whether the American Jobs Plan proposed by President Biden, you know, will add to the deficit and, um, you know, cause inflation. And, you know, via our ability to run uh, surveys um, related to those questions, you know, we can dive in and ask a series of, you know, run a series of polls, uh, sometimes, you know, in priority geographies where there might be um, elected officials who, you know, need to see the research um, related to that question to inform, you know, their decisions, uh, you know, we're able to to do that sort of a thing and often are able to do it in a way that is credible, you know, that, that, that is research that um, people can look at and feel like, okay, I'm not being um, misled or had here, you know, if, if it's a mm-hmm. politician who, 
whose whose job you know essentially is on the line based upon the decisions that they might make you know they're not going to just be persuaded by any old thing particularly if they're you know a politician in a swing district or or battleground state who sure. you know knows how to read a poll right like so we know how to um ask the questions and uh you know ask the the appropriate sort of voters in the right geographies uh questions that are related to the issues of the day in ways that you know find accurate and uh fast and cheap um answers to you know very relevant policy making decisions and we can do that with other forms of research as well but we do it most often with with polling and sure. you know i think that what's relevant about about all of what i just said is that my general view of social science is that the questions that are asked and how um, themselves hold significant um, ideological, I don't want to say biases, but, you know, come from particular ideological perspectives. Like the question, sure. the data that you gather is, is, is conditioned by the question that you ask um, and who you ask and how you ask it and all of that. Um, and who's asking, yeah, right? I mean, that, that's the whole, like, you got to include the measurer part, right? Like, what's, right. what? It, how is that, how is the question itself loaded? Right, exactly. And, you know, from that perspective, I think that there's no such thing as, like, true public opinion um, out there. Like, it's not, I don't think public opinion is just this thing that you can go out and measure, but it's mm -hmm. also not entirely constructed, right? Because, uh you know, there are actual views that voters hold that, you know, politicians and advocates would be smart to play to or to be aware of as they make, you know, their case for change. So it's somewhere between, um, you know, something that exists out in the world and is shaped by the views of um, politicians and um, media elites and, and all that sort of stuff. And that's sort of the area in which we um, engage around the margins. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's, you know, there there's there's wonderful folks out there who who've been doing versions of this uh for for so long obviously, but it seems like you guys have really capitalized on something that was missing and that's why I loved uh um, you know, seeing seeing the president's secretary, uh press secretary, uh, you know, quoting quoting you guys from the podium oh, was it yesterday this week. Um uh, you know that is you. You are having a, a substantial impact there, and, and clearly that that matters to them. And and that's you know again measuring, like you said, public opinion, whatever whatever that might mean in any given case. But but in the end, it's it's can we move the needle a little bit with the folks who can actually um, who who are elected uh, for good or bad to to move the needle to move the needle. Right. Um, I mean, like, I think basically the way I think of what we do is that there are, um, particularly right now, there's, you know, a few options that are ahead of uh, policy options and messaging options that are ahead of um, the president and the people who work for him and, um, you know, uh, Majority Leader Schumer in the Senate and Speaker Pelosi and all the various members of Congress. Mm -hmm. And some of those options are more progressive and, you know, we need to try to convince them as many times as possible across all the various policies that could be implemented to go with the more progressive option. 
and to also, you know, optimize the way that they talk about that policy, um, you know, so that they're talking about it with the most uh, popular and persuasive um, framing so that, you know, not only do we have the best chance of, of getting it done and appealing to the most number of people, but also so that, um, you know, when our our marginal Senate and members of Congress are, are up for re-election in 2022, you know, as many of them win those campaigns uh, as, as possible so that we can, you know, maintain our majority, which is going to be really hard. If you look at the political science yeah. literature, we, you know, the, the president, the, the party that holds the White House very, very rarely, uh, you know, holds the House of Representatives in the first midterm election. Yeah, I mean, usually gets wiped out at, at, at best. Yeah, it's, well, you know, you guys have certainly helped push some of these policies that are, you know, already affecting people's everyday lives. Now we just hope that, like you said, those people will, will run on those things um, and, and show people this is, this is what government, which is not perfect by, by any stretch, but, but in this case can certainly help overcome a deficit of, of practical help from, from the past four years, uh, if not past, you know, 40 years or so. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the the political and and voting power of uh, native uh, people in the U.S. and and I like a- any group per se. I think it's easy and lazy to assume that uh, native people will vote for liberals because liberals tend to, though not always, further environmental protections. For example, right? Um, it's it's lazy because that's not true, and of course, because native people like. Uh, black Americans or, or, or brown Americans, or like, uh, clearly we did a very poor job of in, in the 2020 election of, uh, of, of, of brown Americans of, you know, whether they come from, uh, somewhere in, uh, you know, in, in Mexico or, or Central America or, or the Dominican or Cuba. Um, these are not one group, right? But, but the largest native voting block in the U S right. I, th- I think is in La- Alaska and they helped put Murkowski in office. And exactly. Four of the current members of Congress, uh, I think there's only four members of Congress are of native descent. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, five. Five. Okay. Uh, well, uh, I, are three of them Republican? Two or three, I believe? Three, yes. So there's two from Oklahoma and then there's Yvette Harrell in New Mexico who's okay. of Cherokee descent. And in Oklahoma, the, the two are Tom Cole and Mark Wayne Mullen. Right. And then the the two Democrats are Sharice Davids of Kansas and Kai Kahele of Hawaii, who was just elected in 2020. Right. And obviously, Deb just retired from 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 the House. But, you know, it, it's also understandable because Republicans, again, not not always, but traditionally will stand against government overreach, which is obviously something that that matters here. And I know that tribes spend a lot of money on political campaigns. Can, can you explain to me, because I tried to under, I, I've been a political science nerd for a long time, but I just didn't realize, and this is just, of course, lazy on my part, the, the way tribes are counted for political donations, it seemed to be they're in a specific gray area for, it's, for how, how, how much they can actually donate. Is that correct? I actually am not, not familiar with the campaign finance laws and how they um, relate to relate to tribes. Um, I think that that's right though, that they're, it's a, it's a little bit of a complicated, um, legal question. Sure. 
Well, we'll, we'll try to do some research on that. Maybe it's something I can follow up with uh, down the line here. But I, I noticed you, you talked about uh, in, in some of your writing that you've, you're part of a group called the NDN Collective, uh, which is described as a new nonpartisan organization dedicated to building indigenous uh, power. So I wonder if you can talk about sort of where that came from, what your biggest obstacles are, uh, and where you actually see some progress being made as far as growing uh, native political and, and voting power in the U.S.? I think that just universally in the American political system, the sort of main ingredients of power are political leadership, uh, the, the ability to organize and mobilize people, so um, sort of grassroots activism, money. I think money is a pretty significant one. Sure. Uh, and lastly, media. And I think that um, Indian country has come to possess at least three of those sort of forms of, of political capital. Um, mm. But, uh, you know, I think the fourth, the last one I mentioned, media, um, is still often elusive, although it was, um, interestingly, a pretty significant sort of determining factor in, in elevating um, Secretary Holland to be a, a leading contender for, um, you know, Secretary of Interior. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, so, you know, basically, uh, as you mentioned, there are five Native uh, members of Congress, roughly equal party um, representation among that group. Uh, it was perfectly equal before Holland left for the administration. You know, a number of those uh, uh, politicians, um, including Secretary Holland herself, uh, have relationships to grassroots uh, indigenous-led movements. So, um, you know, uh, Holland fairly... Uh, notably went to the camps erected in the path of the Dakota Access Pipeline and cooked green chili stew and tortillas for um, water protectors. And, you know, the ability, of course, of, of Native people to mobilize large numbers of people and activists for their causes is a significant source of, of power. Um, you know, it's a key ingredient to social change very often. Um, and then, you know, there's a, a minority of tribes that have, uh, you know, done pretty well for themselves, uh, primarily through gaming revenues, though not exclusively through gaming revenues. Mm -hmm. And, you know, some of them spend, uh, like other businesses and, and economic interests on um, politics and campaigns. And, you know, while most Native voters prefer Democrats and most tribes uh, give to Democrats, um, you know, just the sort of location of many tribes being in rural and conservative Western states um, has meant that the, the political relationships in Indian country are, are actually pretty bipartisan. Mm -hmm. um, and as you said, you know, in some instances, those relationships uh, appear to have played a pretty significant role in influencing very important votes, such as the Alaska delegation support for Secretary Holland's um, nomination as Interior Secretary. You know, Lisa Murkowski mm -hmm. and Dan Sullivan, both of the Alaska senators, both Republicans, uh, voted to support um, Holland's confirmation, even though, you know, she's a progressive Democrat. Sure. Um, the part of this that I think, you know, Indian country is, is still building is the media element, um, which I think is really, really powerful and important. You know, most people 
consume politics through cable news and, um, you know, social media as well. And sort of the absence of native voices and representation in journalism, you know, on cable news uh, and in sort of the social media discourse, um, you know, does does translate to less power and influence in a number of those discussions yeah. and conversations. Um, and I think that that's a, that's a very interesting area for me personally, because, you know, I do a lot of journalism and media and writing and, um, you know, Holland's uh, confirmation uh, began as sort of a, a media buzz thing, right? Mm-hmm. Like the, the media narrative around her, um, in many ways sort of predated the, the sort of political insider interest in her becoming the, the secretary of interior and sort of in, in some ways sort of wrote that into existence through sort of an outside campaign that included a significant emphasis on, um, on the media. So, yeah, I mean, I think Indian country is, um, I think surprisingly, influential in American politics. I think a lot of people don't know any of what I just said Uh and probably would not think of tribes as being um, influential in many instances, but they actually surprisingly are. And, you know, one of the core ways in which I see uh, Indian country is continuing to to build power. um, And one of the things that I think that I am personally very invested in is is through that sort of um, power through uh, the narrative and power through, through media and journalism. I, yeah, I mean, I, you know, you're, you're so spot on with, 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 um, you know, media being the lacking point because there's, it's for, for the past, since, since Fox news and, and everything else has sprung up around it and uh, social media, you know, there's at least, you know, almost pre, pre, Cambridge Analytica, right? Pre sort of everyone getting their news from from Facebook in that Fox News period, at least, and, and still today, there is almost no air in the room for anything else, much less you know a, a specifically marginalized ind- indigenous people to to be able to break through there. And it seems like now, with with um, you know, like you said, b- b- buzzy you know, campaigns that, that start from the ground up, like Dev for Interior, you know, you hope to see that that's something that, that can be built upon so that there is more of a voice to match, like you were saying, you know, these, the giving and the voting that have actually made some, made some significant dents in, uh, in, in politics. And now, you know, how do we get that out to a broader place? Because again, like you said, like most people have no idea about any of the stuff you just said. And that's, um, that's a problem, obviously. Yeah, and I think you know that problem runs really deep. My my personal view is that, and you know, this is probably shared by a lot of folks in sort of the Native Studies uh, and Indigenous Studies realm, um, is that you know, at its core, uh, this country has sort of an amnesia with respect to its first peoples, in part because we often invisibilize the you know, acts of colonization and assimilation and in some specific instances, genocide that mm-hmm. were um, perpetrated against uh, Native people. And, you know, to, to claim the land and, you know, the things taken from Indigenous peoples uh, on behalf of, you know, settler society, those, those acts and that history had to be purposefully forgotten and, and sort of 
you know, set sure. out of, out of, um, out of mind and, you know, the continued existence of native people, um, and our demands for rights and, and self-governance and land, uh, you know, are, are a reminder of, of a history that this country has been very good at, at forgetting for, you know, hundreds of years. Yeah. And, and nothing is apples to oranges by any stretch, but I, you know, the guys, um, guys, men who, who, again, for, for hundreds of years look like me, uh, you know, designed the, the genocide of, of first peoples from this country and, and Canada. And, and they built the Atlantic slave trade and, uh, designed the industrial revolution that caused climate change. And, and we're very bad at, uh, purposefully very bad at looking back and, and paying these debts. You wrote an article a few years ago, which feels like a hundred years ago, for the Guardian about when you got arrested in New York uh, for protesting oh, yeah. the, the Dakota pipeline. I thought it was really wonderful, and, and thank you for sharing that four years later. If, if folks haven't read it, read it, we'll, we'll put it in the show notes. You wrote about chaining yourself, you know, together with your arms with I think it was like fifteen hundred other young people, and having this feeling of generations of ancestors and inspirations, all those people you've you've talked about today at your of your back. You're feeling all the the pain and and the anger and feeling what you thought was prepared for that moment until you got arrested and you went into the this system we've designed right and, and, and coming to terms with being in the cell and getting called out two by two and having no no food and and no control and all that stuff that comes after and all the paperwork for your community service there seems to be a broader swath of Americans volunteering to participate in these acts of of, of defiance that indigenous and, and other marginalized people have had to do for centuries here. The data you're calling for progress requires everyone, not just, not just those with most to lose, right? In your mind, a few years after being arrested and everything that's happened since, how can people like me be more involved in a way that supports movements led by indigenous people and people of color and women and Jews and Asian Americans and, and Muslims and, and without co-opting what's already there and what makes them important without making the same mistakes and just rebuilding these exact sort of white supremacist systems that got us to where we are today. I, don't, I mean, this might sound kind of simple, but I think just being a reasonable and thoughtful and compassionate person counts for a lot. Um, I think, you know, one sort of criticism I have of progressive culture is that at times we can um, look and talk down to people who might otherwise be persuaded to be part of our project, um, you know, for not necessarily being hip to, you know, the latest um, way to think and talk about the many social challenges and injustices that we face. And I feel pretty strongly that the best way to build support is, you know, to meet people where they are and to, um, you know, politics is a game of addition. So it's about bringing more people in. And um, I don't, you know, I think one problem that we often face in activist circles is that we are often keeping people out just as much as we are bringing people in. And then on the other side of that, you know, I think that uh, we talked, we started this conversation talking about 
communication and collaboration. And the other side of communication and collaboration isn't talking, it's listening. And I think that that ability to listen is even more probably important than the ability to speak and uh, represent and give voice. Um, you know, I think the, the key ingredient to journalism is not being a great writer necessarily, it's, it's being a great listener. Um, I think the key ingredient to organizing and, um, you know, bringing people together and, you know, creating solidarity and community and, you know, plans of action and all that sort of stuff is listening. You know, it's the ability to, to hear out various voices and perspectives and, um, you know, to create points of alignment and agreement from there. Um, and also to understand where people disagree. I think listening is really important for that as well. So, you know, I think that that, like, I, I, I don't know, this sounds a little uh, trite, I guess, or a little, Please. you know, simple, but I think that like listening is, is just really, really important. And, um, you know, listening to, to try to build uh, understanding, uh, I think is really what we, what we need. And, you know, sometimes that, that requires, um, you know, humility on the side of, uh, of white folks. And, you know, sometimes I think that that also requires patience on the side of, of people who look and, and think more like me. Well, that's thoughtful. I, I, I do appreciate it. It's, um, it, it, yeah, it, it, I think a lot about the social media thing and, and how easy it is to just throw out one's opinions um, as much as we make, you know, super social media nerds can make fun of people who just lurk and listen. But there's, there, there might be something to that, as, as assuming you've curated it and the algorithms let you uh, be exposed to, um, you know, folks who uh, might be a crowd you didn't know you 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 were interested in or you could be a part of, but also uh, hard truths of, of folks who have it much more difficult and are, are doing the work every day. Um, you know, uh, hopefully we can use tools like these for, for good in that sense. Obviously it's a little difficult for people to get together right now to do any listening. So, you know, I'm just trying to find ways to be as effective as we can be. Yeah. And I mean, the platforms also aren't the best for listening all the time, you know? Yeah. Um, I don't think that they were necessarily <laughs> built for that. I think they were built to nah. addict us and sell us things, not to, you know, not for any high-minded notions of human connection and collaboration, unfortunately. Well, I don't know what would give you that idea. Would have been nice. That would have been a good way to go about it. Uh, they would have been bankrupt immediately. Yeah. Um, I love that. I just just want to say I just love that answer. As, and you, know, you said a couple times, oh, I, maybe this is simple, but be be compassionate and listen more. I mean, that those two things could solve all of the problems if, if people would just fucking enact them, like tr you know, truly. I mean, I think there are some places where there just are fundamental disagreements where no amount of listening is gonna sure. re resolve that, right? Like there are, there's clearly a vocal minority of um, white white people in this country who don't want it to be a country that is multiracial and diverse and, you know, yeah. welcomes in immigrants and, you know, takes action on climate change. And that, at the end of the day, that might be an irreconcilable difference between another worldview that is maybe a little bit more enlightened. But I, you know, I think beyond some of those differences, I think that there are a lot of differences that can be at least um, 
you know, at least where there can be more mutual understanding, um, if not, you know, bridge to some sort of synthesis and, and consensus. Sure. Uh, on top of all those things, uh, patience and humility and listening and compassion uh, on and from both sides, we, uh, you know, I'd love to know any, any specific steps that our listeners can take uh, to, to support you. Um, we, we love getting to this point uh, at the, at the, near the end of every podcast um, so we can, we can really give our listeners something to do specifically. And so we like to break it up into two, two little things, what, what we can all do with our voice and what we can do with our dollar. So uh, starting with voice, what should uh, we be asking actionable, specific questions? Uh, should we be asking um, our community to, uh, um, uh, and our representatives uh, that would help support you and your mission? Um, you know, I think that it's really important for people to make sure that their voices are heard by their elected representatives. Um, I think that people should be, uh, there's this, there's this incredible coalition called the Green New Deal Network um, that is organizing actions around the country related to um, the American Jobs Plan and a progressive um, sort of... Uh, not alternative, but a progressive, a more progressive version of it called the Thrive Agenda. Mm -hmm. um, and I think folks should learn more about that, get involved with it, call their representatives, you know, tell them that they should pass the American Jobs Plan or pass the uh, a more progressive version of it that invests in our economy to tackle climate change, to create good jobs and promote racial justice. You know, there's pretty compelling evidence that suggests that uh, people flooding their members uh, inboxes uh, with, um, you know, calls related to the Affordable Care Act, for example, uh, saved a lot of people their health care. And, you know, I think that those kinds of grassroots lobbying actions, um, which everybody, you know, has the power to do, are incredibly important. And they're especially important if you, you know, are a voter in a place like West Virginia, let's say, or Arizona or Colorado or Montana. You know, beyond that, I think there's a lot of um, really great organizations out there that are, that are part of the progressive movement and ecosystem. Um, a number of them that are organizing, um, people, you know, I think the sunrise movement's doing incredible work. Um, mm -hmm. and then, you know, there are organizations like data for progress that are playing a sort of, um, infrastructure and service providing role to um, those organizations and movements by, you know, helping them uh, make the case for the most progressive options, um, you know, via, via research. Uh, and I think that that piece is, is also really important. And, um, you know, I think small dollar donations to all of those organizations do, um, you know, make a, have an impact, uh, and also just, you know, engaging with, with their work in whatever way that people, uh, have the means to do, whether that be, you know, participating in, uh, actions or protests or, um, you know, signing up for mailing lists, um, you know, reading and engaging with research, uh, you know, even I, I hate social media, but I do a lot of it and, you know, engaging mm -hmm. with these things on social media, you know, all of that stuff, uh, there's research that shows that, each of those things, uh, you know, can have and does have an impact. That, awesome. That's awesome. Um, we're actually uh, an endorsing organization of Thrive. I, I, I love what they're doing there. So uh, on top of all those other awesome groups, you did, we'll definitely put all that stuff in the show notes so folks can uh, 
folks can check it out. And would you say that those are the same places where folks should be? Uh, you said talked about smaller do- dollar donations. Um, yeah, yeah. Some, or you feel like those are some of the most effective places out there for folks to help move things along? Yeah, I mean, I think if your if your orientation is to legislative and policy change, you know, there's lots of other organizations out there that are doing. Um, mutual aid and things like that that are also very important during the pandemic. And, you know, I think that that's a very, those are very worthy causes as well. You know, services do need to be provided. People need food on the table and money in their pockets and all that sort of stuff. Um, But, you know, I have chosen to engage through the avenues of of legislative and policy change. And, um, yeah, you know, I think that's, those are sort of the ways that I've tailored my responses, but I don't want to take anything away from all the folks that are doing really essential other forms of um, solidarity building out there. And this is one of the, th- we got to do yeah, it all. I mean, it's one of the things of the system uh, being broken is that you have to help people who are hungry right now uh, while simultaneously, you know, supporting the groups and the folks that are trying to actually change the system itself. Um, but, you know, again, like you said, there's uh there's some amazing groups out there doing all that stuff. So thank you for uh, for supplying those. Brian, why don't you, uh, you take us home here? Let's do it. Yeah, we, well, we've kept you for an hour. That's pretty good. Uh, thank you, first of all, very much again for, uh, for, for doing it. We do have the last little bit, uh, a few more questions. Uh, it's not a lightning round, nope. but uh, if, if you can hang out for a little, little bit longer. That's not right. Three minutes? Yeah, two minutes. You guys have me <laughs> yeah. for two more minutes. Deal. Two Sounds minutes. Perfect. Okay, let's do it. Um, uh, hey, Julian, who is someone in your life that has positively impacted your work in the past six months? My mom. Awesome. <laughs> that's that's uh, Hell, n- yeah. that never needs an explanation. Moms rule. Moms do rule. Uh, that's so great, Julian. What's your self care? What do you What do you do when it's Julian time? Oh, I'm obsessed with tennis right now. I picked up tennis during tennis. the pandemic. Nice. Tennis I'm addicted is so to fun. it. Like yeah. from a cold start, you just thought tennis? Uh, I like knew the basics of how to play and stuff, but um, I didn't like yeah. play competitively growing up or anything. That's awesome. Uh, it's so fun. Singles, great. Doubles, great. You're out there with some friends. What a good time. Yeah. I'm a big uh, physical activity sports person. So, um, Awesome. Yeah. Gotta be. Julian, what's a book you've read this year that has maybe uh, opened your mind to a topic that you haven't considered before or uh, has just changed your your thinking in some way? Uh, I read David Remnick's tome um, about the fall of the Soviet Union, the end of the Soviet Union. Um, It's called Lenin's Tomb. It was uh, his first book. I read it uh, in part because I wanted to understand what makes him a good nonfiction writer, but it also opened my eyes to a lot of a lot of history and events that had happened uh, that I actually did not know all that much about. And also I think, you know, some of the, I, I you know, I, I'm a, a pretty far on the left in American politics, but also, you know, there's um, a pretty significant story of uh, socialist societies, maybe not panning out so well. <laughs> Um, it's <laughs> a very that gentle a way of about. putting it. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, so that one's amazing. I think, book. I think that was a, one of Pulitzer at one point. Um, yeah, Russian, did, his, Pulitzer, yep. yeah, oh, yeah. Russian history is one of those ones that you start diving wow. into it and, uh, it's incredible what's in there. I mean, even if you just uh, go back stuff, I mean, at, at, you know, go, go back to world war two and, and look at, you know, what did they lose? I think something like 26 million people over the course of the war, something like that. Um, just, 
it's it's truly wild. Um, that's a that's a good one. I will I will have to revisit that. Awesome, man. Well, uh, yeah, we've got a list on Bookshop of all of our guest recommendations, so we'll we'll throw that one up there as well. It's such a good. It's crazy. I want every single book that was recommended. You've read it's two such of a them. Good list. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. But working on number yep. three. Uh, Julian, last thing. Where can I know? You said you're not a the world's biggest fan of social media, but you are very good at it. Where can our listeners uh, follow you on the internet? Uh, I'm only on Twitter, so my Twitter is at jnoisecat. And you should also check out the Data for Progress account where we are constantly tweeting out new research. Uh, that's at Data Progress. Awesome. Uh, I love the work you guys have been doing lately uh, with Evergreen, which is really my brand of super nerds. Those guys are great. Yeah, they're they're the best walks around, uh, in my it, opinion. It's pretty awesome. Uh, Julian, thank you so much uh, for your time today, man. We really appreciate thank it. I you, know man. you have a million other things to do, and, and that book's not right in itself. Um, so... <laughs> Um, As I'm learning so, all too well, yes. Yeah, it's it's just the worst, man. Um, hey, we didn't hear the washing repair man once, so I hope everything's great. There. Oh, awesome! Yeah, I closed but, the door, and uh, I think that it, I think it went all right. So it's either either so really great. good or not great. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, thank you again, man. Really appreciate it. Best of luck with everything. Thing, and you know, thank you for all all the hard work you're doing out there. It's, it's inspirational, and and um, we're, we will continue to do our best to support it. Thanks to our incredible guest today, and thanks to all of you for tuning in. We hope this episode has made your commute or awesome workout or dishwashing or fucking dog walking late at night that much more pleasant. As a reminder, please subscribe to our free email newsletter at importantnotimportant.com. It is all the news most vital to our survival as a species. And you can follow us all over the internet. You can find us on Twitter at importantnotimp. Just so weird. Also on Facebook and Instagram at Important Not Important, Pinterest and Tumblr, the same thing. So check us out, follow us, share us, like us, you know the deal. And please subscribe to our show wherever you listen to things like this. And if you're really fucking awesome, rate us on Apple Podcasts. Keep the lights on. Thanks. Please. (laughs) And you can find the show notes from today right in your little podcast player and at our website, importantnotimportant.com. Thanks to the very awesome Tim Blaine for our jamming music, to all of you for listening, and finally, most importantly, to our moms for making us. Have a great day. Thanks, guys. Thanks.